Charles Spurgeon said, no doctrine, no doctrine, he said, in the whole world, in the whole, not world, but in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. Let me read that one more time. Spurgeon says, no doctrine in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. Now, just in case you're worried that this is another sermon on the sovereignty of God, it is. Perhaps not the typical sermon on that subject, because today we see that theme, you might say, in story form or in narrative. And by the way, I mean, we are in the book of Daniel, who, uh, which has as its theme the kingdom of God and ultimately of his Christ, Daniel chapter 7, and the sovereignty of God. So let's actually continue reading for a minute. I'm very uh, eager to look at this with you this morning. We left off in the middle of verse 10. So let's just read just a little bit more here. We left off right when Nebuchadnezzar was about to reveal his dream to Daniel because he wanted Daniel to, to what? To interpret his dream for him. So there in the middle of verse 10, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top, its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. That's the centerpiece of his dream is this tree, this big important tree. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head, Nebuchadnezzar says to Belteshazzar, a.k.a. Daniel, I saw as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Notice what he says here in the middle of verse 15. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, may the Lord bless his word and may God help us this morning. There is here in Daniel chapter 4, among many, many, many statements in the Bible about this uh, truth, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, among so many statements to that end in the Bible, there is in Daniel chapter 4 what you can say is one of the classic statements on the sovereignty of God. There is here in the chapter before us today, one of the classic statements on God being God. And you'll find it if you'll look with me in verse 34. I want you to see this. 
Look down a little bit in verse 34 to where probably in your Bible it indents and begins with what Nebuchadnezzar actually says here. The middle of verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, who's he? That's the Lord God. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verses 34 and 35. Let me share with you just a few quotes about this truth. This is the first thing that we're seeing this morning. First heading is, is the sovereignty of God. A few quotes. Jerry Bridges died a few years ago. Jerry Bridges says, This is the essence of God's sovereignty. His absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. No creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bounds of his will. John Owen said this 400, 450 years ago. John Owen said, just before he died, he said, I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. Sounds like he could say this today if he were dying. I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm, but while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. While the great pilot is in the ship, John Owen was a pretty important guy in church history. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. One more from Jerry Bridges. It seems we will allow God to be anywhere except upon his throne, ruling his universe according to his good pleasure and his sovereign will. It seems we'll allow God to be anywhere except there because, well, because we want to be there. And so we see here this morning, we see, uh, again, the first thing that we notice is the sovereignty of God. This is a great opportunity this morning because we're not thinking about this merely as a, as a proposition or I'm not, I'm not here this morning to give you any type of theological lecture. Look at this story. And first of all, stay at the end. Not only, friends, do we first of all Go with me here. Not only do we first of all see the sovereignty of God clearly established, and let's just read that again, this classic text. We do well to look at this again. Look at these words in verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Remember, the clay, the clay does not say to the potter, what are you doing? That's not how it goes. 
Well, I left off. Not only do we see the sovereignty of God, but we see the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride. This is why it's so practical. This is why this doctrine is not meant to be left on the shelf to be studied by theologians or interested Christians who may or may not be in what you may know is sometimes called the cage stage. I've discovered the sovereignty of God. You know, It's not just for theologians or interested Christians. This is practical, and we see it's practical right here, the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride. Look with me at verse 36. It's okay for us to be at the end here. He actually begins the chapter at the end of the story. But look at verse 36. At the same time, this is Nebuchadnezzar, at the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. It's, it's like who in the Bible? It's like Job. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar. You know the three-letter word, but, is very important in the Bible. This word here, like Romans chapter 8, there is, therefore, now, no condemnation. Now, I think it's important here in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you see that there? Again, the second point this morning is the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride. Uh, God, let's make it more personal. God is able to humble us in our pride. Let me ask you very directly to look at verse 37. And if you would answer this question in your own mind, would you answer this question? Is his testimony your testimony? Just look at the verse for a minute. Is the testimony in its entirety that Nebuchadnezzar gives here, is that yours? Because it seems, by all appearances, it seems that something pretty dramatic has changed in his life. And when you pay special attention to the end of that verse, then you have, aha, then you may very well have a true convert. When you see him saying not only these great words, not only does he say, now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I'm, I'm, I'm asking all of us, have you ever personally come to that point to where you are able to say, including that very last part about yourself, those who are full of pride, he is able to humble. You know, we are not so different than Nebuchadnezzar. The obvious external differences aside, like Babylon was a great empire, and he was a great king. And none of us here have ever been the awesome king of an awesome empire. But at the end of the day, we are way more like Nebuchadnezzar than we're not. And this is his testimony. I want you to notice those words again at the end of verse 37. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The first thing that we learn from those words, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The first thing that we learn is just the fact 
that God has the capability to humble the proud. Now, it's pretty cool because God also has the ability to exalt the humble. You see, God also, he exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. And the first thing, we're not trying to think like really deep here. The first thing that these words tell us are just the fact that God is able. He's able. Just emphasize that word. It's not, it's not at all beyond his capacity to humble the proud. You see? Not reading anything into this, not looking for any type of deeper meaning. This is something that God is able to do. This story tells us, King Nebuchadnezzar tells us, all of my wise men were not able to interpret my dream. Daniel was able because of God. God is able to humble the proud. Please note that fact. Please make note of that fact. God is able to humble the proud. But you know, not only does it point out to us just that fact, that basic truth that you need to know and that I need to know. But also, this is actually good gospel news in a sense, you could say. Because not only is he able to humble the proud, but in the words of Nebuchadnezzar, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You see, as I've said before, we are actually much more like Nebuchadnezzar than we're not to begin with. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we are all in Adam. We are all in Adam, and Adam and Eve sinned before God. They rebelled against God. They plunged the world, in a sense, into ruin. They plunged us, uh, their posterity, into ruin. We are, we are at heart rebels against God. We are in Adam. Every single human being has solidarity. There is solidarity in the human race because we are all in Adam. And so we, like Nebuchadnezzar, we, like Nebuchadnezzar, suffer from, not suffer from, but are guilty of this pride. Every single one of us, friends, all of us, you know, the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. All of us here this morning are doomed and condemned apart from grace apart from grace because of our sinful pride. And who doesn't know who's most likely not to know the depths of their own pride? Me! All of us! But this is good news, I say. This is good news. Those who walk in pride, he's, he's able to humble you. That's good news because we're prideful. And in our pride, we have no hope. We have no hope except for condemnation in eternity under the wrath of God in hell. But the good news of the gospel, ultimately in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, is that Jesus Christ is the humble one. And God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And through the one who is more humble than Moses... Moses was a humble man. He was the meekest man in all the earth, the Bible tells us. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the true meek one, the true humble one. God is able to help us so that we might not be condemned in our foolish pride, in our foolish pride. 
You know, of course, it was the reformer Calvin who said, you will not know God until you know yourself truly. And maybe even more importantly, you will not know yourself truly until you have truly encountered God. I know Ben and Ben and Oliver went to visit Liberty last week and prospective college visit, and it was at Liberty to where some friends and I went on a little venture that I don't think we ever knew that we were going on. And as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, I was converted at a young age. Man, did God wake me up there. Did I begin to see there as a 19 and a 20-year-old this truth of the sovereignty of God? And we, you know, we can just say over and over again, the sovereignty of God, but we need to make it personal. God, the God who is sovereign, the personal God who is, he is God. He is holy. And, and, and not to overstate it, but in a sense, my, my world and my thinking begin to change because this is what God wants for all of us, for all of his people. God wants us to see that we are not the center of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar is not the center of the universe. He actually was. He actually was in a real sense, but he's not. And he says, he says like the demoniac in Luke, or not in Luke chapter 5, but in Mark 5. He says, I came to my senses. And God wants us all to have a Copernican, Copernican revolution to see that he is at the center of the universe and not we ourselves. Not we ourselves. There's only three things, and we've done two. The first one is the sovereignty of God. We notice that classic statement in verses 34 and 35. The second one was this, the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride. The sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride, 36 through 37, particularly verse 37, and particularly the end of verse 37. But when we considered that second point, the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride, we saw it in a statement at the, at the end of verse 37 there. And so number three, point number three is the same point as number two, but it's now in the story. We will not look at every detail of the story, but point number three is the same. Here it is, the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride. Are you ready for this? the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride. Now, now, at least for a bit, let's, let's look at this story. What a great privilege that God has given us to open his word. We do not know God as we ought if we don't have the Old Testament. It's all one book. It's all about God. It all points to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus taught those disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opened their eyes to see the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament pointed to him. Let's see third, the sovereignty of God and the humbling of human pride, not this time in a statement, but in a story. Look at verse 19 for a minute. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation be for your enemies. Now let's stop and just make sure we know what's going on here. Uh, 
Here's what's going on in Daniel chapter 4. I don't want to take anything for granted. You could be forgiven for starting to read Daniel chapter 4 and think, wait a minute, haven't we been here before? You could be forgiven for thinking, "What is this, is this the same? It's, it's very similar to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 4, both chapters, Nebuchadnezzar receives a dream and he is very anxious for its interpretation. And in both chapters, through God, it's Daniel, Daniel through God, who's able to give the interpretation. In chapter 2, it was a dream about a statue with a head of gold, and Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold, the Babylonian Empire. Here in chapter 4, it's about a tree. And once again, listen, once again, it reminds us of the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. Nebuchadnezzar here has another dream, This time, he's even more terrified by the dream. He's afraid. He's disturbed. He's frustrated with his wise men. What does this dream mean? What is the meaning of this dream that I've had? This is really bothering me. It's more than bothering him. It alarms him. And so he has this dream of what in chapter 4? It's a dream of a tree. It's a tree that's well spoken of, if I could say it like that. It's a tree that that has grown to be so, it's it's a tree that's like the center of the universe, the center, in a sense, of the known world. And the tree, its branches spread, the birds dwell in the tree, it gives shade to the animals, and it's this great tree. And then we read about this, uh, what, what in the world's going on when we read about verse 13, a watcher and a holy one, that's a, that's most likely an angel, a messenger of judgments who says, chop down the tree. As one man says, the divine lumberjack comes and takes his axe. That's what you and I need too, is we need the divine lumberjacks and to show us who he is and who we really are in our sin. Well, he says, Daniel, you're my man. This time, unlike chapter two, he says, I'm going to tell you the dream. I don't need, I'm not going to put you on the spot to tell me the interpretation and the dream. I'll tell you the dream. You give me the interpretation. Flip back to chapter two for just a moment. Since we're talking about the similarities and the differences for Dan, uh, of two and four, I am very eager that we not forget something here in Daniel Chapter 2, as Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar, same two people, as he interpreted his dream in Daniel chapter 2, he spoke about king. one kingdom would come after another. Your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, is, is great. Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Verse 41 of Daniel chapter 2, and as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. And verse 44, notice this, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Look at this, verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. That's the key phrase, by no human hand. I'm very eager for us to remember, and you'll just have to go back and look at this, what we've read in its context. It says it time and again, time and again, the stone, what? 
the stone cut by no human hand. And what does Jesus say? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, back in chapter 4, Back in chapter 4, all chapters 1 through 6 are just famous, great stories. And this is one of my favorites. This is a wonderful, chapter 4 is excellent. And Nebuchadnezzar's alarmed. None of my wise men can help me. Daniel, you're the man. You're going to help me. I'm alarmed. And then Daniel becomes alarmed. Do you remember that in verses 19 and 20 that we just read? Daniel becomes alarmed. You see, Daniel is devoted to God and he does not lose his his courtesy. It seems, if you read verses 19 and 20, it seems Daniel has an affection, we might say. That doesn't say this explicitly, but it seems he has grown to have affection for the pagan king whom he serves. Because he says, I do know the interpretation. I can tell you exactly what your dream is about. And I wish, oh, if it could only be for somebody besides you, O king. If it could be for somebody, if it could be for your enemy. Because I wouldn't wish this dream on your worst enemy, we might say. But here's the deal, king. And we're not even going to read everything today. But here's what Daniel says to him. Daniel says, basically, remember, what was his dream? The primary thing about his dream was this great and awesome tree, a good tree, but a tree that would be chopped down and only the the roots, only the stump would, in fact, be left. Daniel says, you're the tree. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. You are great. You are great. And in your shade, The peoples of the world find shelter. The birds of the air rest. You provide food. There's a lot of good happening through your rule, but you do not know God. And so God is going to send his angel. This is Daniel's interpretation. If you just keep reading, God is going to send his angel to chop you down. Again, as Ian Dugan says, the divine lumberjack. God knows what what we need. He knows what we need. He says God's going to send his angel to chop you down. And so he pleads with him. He pleads with him. Verse 27. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. We may say, we may say today, by God's grace, wake up. God, wake us up. Wake up to your sin and to your iniquities. Practice righteousness, he says to him. There may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The sovereignty of God has ever... This is the phrase you need to have. This is a great phrase when you think about the pleasures of God. The pleasures of God. Like we opened the service this morning. Fear not, little flock, said Jesus. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, the pleasures of God. What about my pleasures? Chick-fil-A says, I can have my pleasures. Well, the world is not about us. The world is about God, and that's how God wants it. God will bring in his kingdom. He will forcefully overthrow the other foolish kingdoms of the world, and he will install his Christ. 
And so he says here, there may perhaps, right, at the end of verse 27, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Turn from your sin. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So here's what happens. Here's what happens in verse 28. This is pretty cool. An entire year elapses. An entire year goes by. Do you know the story? After Daniel tells him the interpretation. Here's the interpretation, O king. I, I love you. You need the Lord. And you're in deep trouble. You need to repent so that God may spare you. And a whole year goes by. And then here's the difference. Here is the difference in this whole text as we're talking about the sovereignty of God, the pleasures of God. The thing that changes by God's grace is King Nebuchadnezzar goes from doing this to doing this. Now, I know that's really simple, but get this. King Nebuchadnezzar, by the grace of God, goes from doing this to doing this. And a whole year goes by and, and nothing's happened. And it's just like us today. Where is the promise of his coming, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. The false teachers mock Christians. The false teachers mock and say, man, look at all these hundreds and thousands of years that have gone by. And you're preaching still about Jesus coming back. That's great, man. Pat you on the head, you idiot. Where's the promise of his coming? And this year goes by, and this is true of all of us. Where is the promise of his judgment? And Daniel chapter 5, don't look, we're not looking there now. Daniel chapter 5, judgment. Daniel chapter 4, judgment and then mercy and grace. Daniel chapter 5, judgment. Jesus returning, judgment for all of those who do not know him. Daniel chapter 4, mercy, mercy, mercy preceded by judgment. This whole year elapses. It's one year after Daniel has told him the interpretation, and Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his palace. Now listen to this, and here I quote, The view from the roof of the royal palace of Babylon included numerous ornate temples, the hanging gardens he had built for his wife, students, you know, the hanging gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That's this guy. That's Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's up on the He's up on the roof of the palace looking around and the scripture tell us he's looking down from the roof of his palace and he's looking, he says, look at what I've done. And it was awesome. And he was awesome. And it was quite an accomplishment. The things that he had done. The outer wall of the city was wide enough for chariots driven by four horses to pass each other on the top. And the scripture tells us in Daniel 4, as he looked at this, it's basically he's saying, look at what my hands have done. And boom, because God in his kindness is not only able to exalt the humble, he is able to humble the proud. And if it means, as it does here, that he sends the king of the world, in a sense, for seven years into the wilderness, away from society, to become less than human, this man, here's the deal. It is insane to live your life as though there is no God. It is ins it's insane to claim to be an atheist. There are no atheists in the world at the end of the day. There are not. 
But what's more problematic in the world and in the church, it's insane. It's insane to live as a practical atheist, as though you are the Lord of your life. That's insanity to live as a practical atheist. And since that is insanity, it will lead to insanity. Do you see? It was insane in the first place for him to deny God. And therefore, he became insane. He went into the wilderness. The Bible tells us, boys and girls, that he was wet with the dew and his hair grew long like eagle's feathers and his nails were growing. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years, the judgment of God falls. Look at what I have done. Boom, the judgment falls. He goes out into the wilderness for seven years looking like, I don't know, Lee Singer of Aerosmith or something. His hair is long. His nails are long. I know I'm old. And then he's doing this. And after he's doing this, he's in the wilderness for seven years. And he's like the demoniac from Mark chapter 5 who's tearing his clothes and he's naked and he's walking in the tombs and the people are afraid of him and there's nothing that they can do about him. They bind him in chains and he rips the stinking chains apart. And you and I have more in common with the demoniac of Mark chapter 5 and with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4 than we even realize because apart from the grace of God, we go on in our insanity and we are foolish and God is gracious. And the text explicitly says that he looked up at the end of the time because it was God's pleasure. It was the pleasure of God. You say, how's that good news? That is good news that God sent him into the wilderness for seven years. Do you not think it's good news if God deals with you so that you will be his for all of eternity if you need to be dealt with? And we all do. And he looks up. And here's the whole message of this chapter, which I intentionally didn't want us to look every single verse. Here's the whole, here it is right here, 17, 25, and 32. Verse 17, 25, and 32. Verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, to what end? Why? Why? What's the purpose? To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's actually funny, the end of that verse. He sets over the kingdoms of this world, the lowliest of men. Some people thought that was Trump and some people think it's Biden. It doesn't matter. He sets over the kingdoms of this world, the lowliest of men. Verse 25, same thing, same thing that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods, probably seven years of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom his will, to whom he will. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know what we just read in verse 25. God wanted the original audience of this book, who's that? The people of Israel in exile. He wanted them to know, to know, to know 
verse 25. And the same thing is said in verse 32, the same thing. Look at it. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And that's what happened. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, same thing, right? 17, 25, 32. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is what God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know. This is how he wanted to comfort and reassure and encourage his people then to know. It is what he wants his people today to know. That God is sovereign. The pleasures of God. He installs kings and takes away kings. He is God over all. Verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against him. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. Some of you boys and girls may want to go home and draw a picture of verse 33 today. His hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Verse 34, at the end of the days, those little phrases aren't incidental. At the end of the days that God had purposed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Is that your, your reason returns to you. You become a human being fully alive. Through Jesus Christ. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and appraised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation I don't know what I thought about this before. I had the opportunity to study this passage like I had never done before. I talked to James about it very briefly this morning. It does seem like Nebuchadnezzar was converted. I know we can't say that with 100% certainty because what you have in the first four chapters is a lot of very clear paganism. Very clear. Talking about my God, my God, my God, lowercase g. But you know what's kind of cool? is back at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 2. He actually begins at the end. Everything that happened in chapter 4 has happened in history, and now he's writing about it. He's sharing his testimony. It's testimony night at church. King Nebuchadnezzar, would you like to step to the mic and start us off? Yes, I would. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages, the same language he used in chapter 3 when he commissioned all the world to bow down to his idol that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. The greatest sign and wonder that the Most High God has ever done for us is to put His Son on a Roman cross displayed before the world. As John MacArthur's helpful title of a recent book says, one, listen, one perfect life. One perfect life. That's not my life. That's not your life. That's nobody's life save for the Son of God. One perfect life. And the greatest, as I say, the greatest, verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. The greatest sign that he's given us is of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bread from heaven. 
He is the one who died on the cross as our substitute. He is the one who was raised from the dead, who ascended, who intercedes for the saints, who is coming again. It's his kingdom. Please, I told you, I'm jealous for us not to forget the end of chapter 2. It's the stone cut without human hands. His kingdom. What were we singing? Martin Luther. It's Reformation Day. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. There's no other kingdom that you can say that about. There's no other king that you can say that about. I know we've lingered just a tad long. But I close by saying chapter 4 is about the kingdom of God. God is the king. God is God. And in chapter 7, we see that this everlasting dominion and this kingdom is given to one like a son of man. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And Jesus, of course, says in the Gospels, he calls himself the son of man. And Jesus says, of course, in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Nebuchadnezzar was great. But when you see the sovereignty of God, you tend to see human sovereignty in a different light. There is such a thing as human sovereignty. But when we see the sovereignty of God, we see it in a different light. The sovereignty of God humbles our pride, and we bow the knee to King Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 7. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it is a book about you and about your son. And it is a book about us and about our sin and also about how we were made in your image, upright, holy. Thank you for creation regained through Jesus Christ. Lord, do what you need to do this is tough. If we're really honest, it's, it's actually very tough to pray, but help us to even pray. Do what you need to do. Thank you for this example this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.